spotlight was like a Peugeot commercial. Yeah, a little red. <laughs> Do you have to pay people to say that? No, I didn't know that was coming. <laughs> well, that was fun, yeah. I am very grateful that you do such a good job. Mm -hmm. I better do a good job, huh? Yeah, it's really good. So um, I have some bad news today. I didn't get the memo. Oh, what memo? Well, what I heard was that John was going to talk about hydrogen production from bacteria. And I came all prepared to follow up. <laughs> So now we now we got to talk about printing buildings with drones, <laughs> and I'm not prepared. So why don't you start us off today? <laughs> well, I see this. What is it? This is following up on making hydrogen from bacteria. I mean, from <laughs> algae. Mm -hmm. And why can't we talk about that? Yeah, this we can't do this. Oh come on! <laughs> <laughs> I think we can. We can. You, I think we can. I know See, we can. the power of a positive attitude. Mm -hmm. Wow. I hear all about it. Well, it is kind of exciting. Well, I got the memo. I don't want to steal his thunder because he's probably going to do it next week or sometime or whenever. <laughs> but you know, if you um, if you go in the ocean, mm -hmm. you can see that there is a, a type of algae. Algae is a little one-celled plant that grows, mm -hmm. and one of the famous kinds is blue-green algae. In fact, there's some big lakes up in Washington State where they actually harvest this and put it in bottles and sell it to people, and it's supposed to make you real healthy. <laughs> Did it work? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So anyway, if you take blue-green algae and put it inside a tube, imagine this, is, this hydrogen water bottle is just a glass tube and it's long, and then you block off the bottom and you black off the top so that there's no air getting into this tube, and then you put it in the sunshine. The blue-green algae wants to grow, but it can't get oxygen. It needs oxygen to grow, and it's getting the sun energy, and so it does something really interesting. It makes its own oxygen, and it does it by breaking water molecules in half, just <laughs> ripping them apart so it can eat the oxygen, okay? Which, of course, leaves two hydrogen atoms to bubble off. Mm -hmm. And so these long cylinders of blue-green algae actually bubble off hydrogen, hydrogen gas, which you can use then to power your automobile. And I thought he was going to tell us all about that. <laughs> Dr. John, what happened? <laughs> Coming up next week? <laughs> Change their mind? He's, well, he's going like... Oh. Was I supposed to read them both? <laughs> anyway, I really, I really enjoyed the idea of the little drones that are printing things. And you know... Uh, that stuff's really becoming real. The things that we can do, the accuracy now, positioning. Uh, we have a GPS satellite network that tells us exactly where we are. That's why when you're driving in your car and you don't know the roads, because no one has to learn them anymore. <laughs> and it tells you, okay, get in the right lane and, and guide you, because it knows right where you are. But 
how accurate is it? And it's, it's, it's amazingly accurate, but not if you're going to print something very high resolution. But you can now put signal sources, say, on posts outside a building, and you could get the resolution very high. And I think the potential of doing things like that is really exciting. And then Tobias and Arnold Schwarzenegger got up and told us about mental laboratories. And I really get excited about that subject. Bill Lear believed that most of the research that he did was in his mental laboratory, and so did Thomas Edison. It's a place where you build experiments. And, and Lear used to tell me that uh, you should get better at doing experiments in your mental, mental laboratory. You would try things and try things until finally you find something that you're just sure is going to work. And then you build it in the physical laboratory. And if you get a different result than you predicted, then you make some little adjustments to your mental laboratory so that next time you'll be more accurate. And it is true, you can make mental models very quickly uh, compared to actually trying to order materials and machine them and so forth. So you can try a lot of experiments. And um, I really enjoy when I'm getting ready to doze off at the end of a wonderful day and I'm going to go to sleep. I love conducting mental experiments <laughs> until I get so tired I fall asleep. But it is fun because I try a lot of different things. And in my mental laboratory, which I've built over the years, and I encourage you to do the same, I not only build prototypes and see how they work, I then also build marketing models and imagine how it would work in the marketplace. Sometimes uh, being able to, to come up with an idea and then test it in the market, you can say, well, I could make it work, but no one would buy it, or it would be too expensive, or whatever. Uh, so you need to do both. We were listening to Tobias talk about the early flying machines, and he told us about that design of Da Vinci, where he had kind of a strange little contraption that would move air, and he says the only problem is we need to figure out some way to turn it Turn it fast. And 500 years ago when he lived, we didn't really have a way. Later, the steam engine came along. And you could get a lot of power out of a steam engine. So you think, OK, I'll just put a steam engine here. You know, they had steam locomotives that were very powerful. So you get a steam locomotive and just park it there outside your house and then put one of those pinwheel things on top. Boy, you could make it spin. But locomotives are very heavy. <laughs> Do you know why they're so heavy? Why? <laughs> I caught her daydreaming, didn't I? <laughs> I was thinking about spinning. <laughs> why you, would you put a locomotive outside You're thinking there? about spinning. You mean like <laughs> dancing? Yeah, I can do yeah. that. <laughs> well, locomotives are heavy mm -hmm. because they have to pull big trains. And to get traction to be able to pull all their weight, they have to be very heavy pushing on the track. Well, I thought they were right? heavy because of the metal. <laughs> aren't, the, aren't they? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So because they need to be heavy, can you imagine if you made a real light steam locomotive out of foam 
and you fire it up, somehow it doesn't blow up because it's made out of foam. Mm -hmm. And the wheels start turning, but there's no weight. The wheels would just turn. You'd never be able to pull a train because it wouldn't get any traction. You need to have the weight. The metal is how you get the weight. <laughs> Not only does the metal make it heavy, but it also gives you something to contain the pressure of the steam and the firebox and it. You know, locomotives have flywheels that are heavy too, but you need that weight to pull it, right? Mm -hmm. How did we get off on this? I don't know. <laughs> I'm following though. <laughs> yeah. Well, if if John had just spoken about I don't, hydrogen I algae. I think since you're Dr. Hydrogen and the father of hydrogen, you can tell us all about hydrogen and algae. I can? Yeah. Don't you guys think so? We do. I feel socially, emotionally adjusted. Thank you. <laughs> you and Jack. Yeah, 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 fine. Yeah, you know, it's, it's good to kind of let that happen sometimes. Well, hydrogen is the smallest little atom that we've ever discovered. And until someone figures out how to make an atom with a minus number of electrons and protons, it's probably going to be the smallest. It is absolutely the smallest. And I became very uh, excited about hydrogen when I was uh, in the ninth grade. And I, I kind of heard about it, I guess, in passing. But in the ninth grade, I had a, an amazing science teacher. His name is Mr. Mitchell. I remember the first day of science. We went in, we sat down in the classroom, and. I, I already love science. I love science from the third grade on. I just fell in love with it. But we were sitting there, and Mr. Mitchell came walking into the classroom, and he had this lecture table up in front of the classroom. He did stand behind it, and behind that was a chalkboard. But he came walking up to that table, and then he pulled out a CO2 fire extinguisher and pulled the trigger and sprayed us all just like that. <laughs> Scared me half to death. You get your attention? Yeah, and that's how I met Mr. Mitchell. I didn't know that. Yeah, he was, he was really, really a funny, clever, wonderful man, and I learned a lot about him. I mean, about science from him, okay? But the day that changed my life was the day that... Uh, when we came in and sat down, he had this fancy glass thing there on the table. It had a big glass bowl and a little tube. It went out and had two tubes going up with stopcocks. Those are little valves made out of glass. And he hooked it up to an electric power source. And he had two pieces of metal. I learned later that those little ribbons of metal that were inside the, the container underwater were actually platinum. Oh. which is a very valuable metal. But they started to bubble. And bubbles were coming off both pieces of platinum. And the bubbles would go up through the water, and they started pushing the water down from the top of these tubes below the stopcocks. Well, interesting. And then he pointed out to us that the water was being pushed down faster in this one than it was in the other one twice as fast. So we were getting a big bubble over here and a bubble half size here. And he explained to us it's because this one is hydrogen and this one is oxygen. And 
He knew which was which because of whether he put the positive or negative charge on those two pieces of platinum. Well, why would the hydrogen be twice as much as the oxygen? And then he wrote, it's because hydrogen molecule is made of two hydrogens and one atom of oxygen gluing together. I learned later in chemistry that the reason for that is that oxygen is an unhappy molecule, <laughs> meaning that it has six electrons going around in its outer shell. And atoms like eight electrons. And some of you say, why eight? Oxygen likes eight. Atoms like eight. Okay. Yeah. Why do they like eight? Why not seven? I don't know. Why not nine? I don't know. Yeah, me too. But they do. And they, they want eight electrons. Oxygen only had six in the outer shell. And so it was looking for two more electrons. Hydrogen, on the other hand, only had one electron in any shell. That's all it had, period. That was its total budget, one <laughs> electron. And so if an oxygen atom would make friends with a hydrogen atom and they would share that one electron... Well, then oxygen would have seven. That didn't make him happy. But if he found another hydrogen with his electron, then they had eight in the outer shell, and that's what glued them together, okay? But since there was two hydrogens for every oxygen, when it became a gas, it was twice as voluminous. Well, this isn't very exciting yet. It was fascinating. It was neat to see bubbles and all that happening. But then he did something really fascinating. He took a little toy balloon and put it on top of one of the tubes and then turned the glass stopcock. It's a little valve made out of glass and let the hydrogen flow into the balloon. And it inflated the balloon with this hydrogen that he had just made. I'm watching, trying to figure out, so what's he doing now? <laughs> and when he got the balloon full of hydrogen, he tied a knot in the balloon and then he tied a string around the bottom of the balloon. He held the string, he let it go, and the balloon floated up like a helium balloon. Only I should say, it floated up better than a helium balloon. <laughs> helium balloons have two nuclei, protons and two electrons. They're twice as heavy as hydrogen, much lighter than air, so they float up. Hydrogen's very light. It really floats up good. And he had it there floating, and it was neat. And I thought, well, so now we know how to make balloons. <laughs> but then came the aha moment, the moment that would literally change my life. He took the string in one hand, and with the other one, he lit a match. And he lit a fire to the bottom of the string. And it I think it was a special string because it would burn pretty good. And he let the balloon go. And it floated up to the ceiling of our science room. And we watched as that little flame climbed up the string to the balloon. And when it got all the way up there, so it ignited the balloon, there was a big explosion. <laughs> and I... Now this is science. <laughs> wow, look at this. Boom. And then he went to the chalkboard. Some of you don't know what that is. That's like a whiteboard with chalk. Anyway, 
And he wrote that when you combine hydrogen with oxygen, it turns back into water and it gives off an enormous amount of energy. For him to be able to make the hydrogen and oxygen from the water, he had to put energy into the water, which he did in the form of electricity. And the electricity pulled the water molecules apart and they bubbled off. But then when he ignited them, they gave that same amount of energy back off. And I, I was just mystified. So I saw him make an explosion. It was a ball of fire. And he was telling us that that ball of fire was water being made. Water doesn't burn, but water is made by a flame. And boy, these gears in my Mendel laboratory that I didn't have yet started turning. Gosh. So you can actually make fire out of making water. And I thought about that. That's got to be important. There's got to be something about that is really important. Well, a few days later, I came back and gave him a little paper that I'd written up about how it would be a good idea if we ran our cars on hydrogen. Because <laughs> in a car, you have a cylinder, and there's an explosion, and it pushes the car forward, and you get pollution. But if you used hydrogen, there'd be no pollution. There'd just be water vapor coming out of the car. And he thought that was an interesting paper. He said, that's, that's fine. And I, I was just sure, hey, we should do this. This seems so easy. Now, I want to talk a little bit about why that made sense to me. I had read a book about engines, internal combustion engines, or gasoline engines, as most people call them. And this is a model of an engine that doesn't work because they've cut it in half so we can see inside. <laughs> but it is kind of nice to see how this model works. Now, as you turn the crank, you notice there's a piston here that goes up and down. And it's hard to see up here unless we really could figure out how to zoom in on this thing. Um, maybe I could turn it this way. Uh -huh. There you can see it maybe on the other camera. So there are two valves. These valves go up and down, and they open and close. One of them lets fuel and air go into the combustion chamber, and the other one lets it come out. So if I can turn this back now and let you see it this way. So when this piston starts a cycle, it's way up at the top, and as the crank turns, the piston starts going down. As it goes down, it's sucking in air with, in case of hydrogen, with hydrogen or with gasoline fuel. So in here, you have a mixture of fuel and air, which is combustible. It will burn. And when you get it all the way down to the bottom here, if, if you were to somehow ignite that, it would blow up but it wouldn't create any power because the piston is all the way down. And so uh, we do have in an engine a spark plug. And it's just a little plug that's screwed in the engine that you can send an electric pulse on. and It'll make a spark and ignite whatever's in the combustion chamber. 
But engines are made so that sparks are only fired at just the precise correct time, and it's not now. This has just pulled the air and the fuel into the combustion chamber, but now I bring the piston back up as it keeps turning, and it, it compresses the, the fuel-air mixture into a very, very tight thing. Now, it actually turns out that on a typical engine, for every uh, eight volumes of fuel-air, it compresses it down into one volume of fuel-air. On diesel engines, it can be like 18 or 22 times when it just really compresses it down. And when it's really compressed, now the piston is way up high at the top of the cycle. And if it fires a spark and there's a big explosion here, the explosion is going to push the piston down, which turns the engine. And that's, that's the concept. Well, I read about that in a book. And I thought, well, instead of using gasoline for the fuel, we'll use hydrogen. And so I decided to do it, and I acquired a, a lawnmower engine from a neighbor. It was a wore-out lawnmower engine. In fact, as chance would have it, I have a picture of my original lawnmower engine that I mowed the neighbor's lawn to get. I'd like to show it to you if I could. This is my engine. Oh, where, oh, where can my green look? There it is. It's coming. It's coming. And there it is. Can you see it? Ah, that's it. So you notice this little old funny engine. There's a place on the right where you wrap a rope around with a knot in it, and then you pull it to get it started. And right on top there's a round tube. That is something I made in my metal shop at school. I call it my carburetor. It's the place where I'd mix my hydrogen and air going into the engine. Now, I can tell you... A, very long three-year story of how hard it was to get that puppy working uh, because it, it didn't really want to run. And there were a lot of reasons. I tried a lot of different things. I had a lot of difficulties, but, but success did not come easy. And I might add that um, it's harder to run an engine on hydrogen than it is on hydrocarbon fuels like gasoline or methanol or propane. And because of that, early researchers concluded it's impossible. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I wasn't really an engineer yet. I was a high school kid. And so I didn't know any better, and I kept trying and trying and trying. Well, eventually, um, I got tired of wrapping that rope around there and pulling it and getting a half-second test. So I got this idea. Why don't I get a big electric motor that I can plug into electricity and hook it to the engine with a fan belt? So if I turn on the electricity, the engine will just run, even though it's not running. It, we call it motoring. It just It's being driven by the electric motor, but it makes it run, run. Then I can do experiments on trying to make it burn the hydrogen. So I did that with this engine. I put it on a box. I mounted it to a big electric motor. Turned on the electric motor, it started turning, and then I started putting varying amounts of hydrogen in the intake. Bam, bang, boom. I had all of these explosions. It was firing at the wrong time. Things were wrong, and I'm trying to figure out, but it just kept running because it had the motor. It had a great big motor turning it. And then, as if by magic, it stopped exploding, 
And I started running. And I hadn't done anything. <laughs> well, I learned a great lesson. When you have an old gasoline lawnmower engine that's been mowing lawns for at least 10 or 15 years, mm -hmm. inside this combustion chamber, you get a lot of carbon buildup from some of the gasoline that didn't burn completely. So there was carbon in there. And when I would try to run it on hydrogen, that carbon would get warm. Mm -hmm. And when carbon is warm, it's like a match for lighting hydrogen. It won't light gasoline, but it will light hydrogen. And so while I was still pulling the hydrogen and the air in, and the intake valve was still open, it was getting ignited by the carbon, and it was blowing out the intake manifold, and that's why I had all the fireworks. But as I kept running it on hydrogen because of the motor, it started burning the carbon out. It cleaned it all out, made it so there's no carbon in there because it kept burning it, turning it into CO2. And once the carbon was gone, it started to run, and it ran very well. And I realized I have just conquered the world. <laughs> yeah. But it felt like that, didn't it? Yeah, it kind of felt like that. I, I wanted to, to just share a clip of my, my little engine. Now, the engine I'm showing you is like the one that I used in the science area. Remember the green, green engine? Mm -hmm. It's like my lawnmower engine. However, my lawnmower engine has been lost. My, um, <clears throat> anyway, it was thrown out by my little brother <laughs> because he couldn't get it to run on his go-kart. <laughs> and uh, so I went down and I got another one just like it. Like it. It's called a Briggs and Stratton lawnmower engine. And I'd like to show you this little video clip of me running it on hydrogen. Okay. All right, here we go. So here we are in the hydrogen laboratory. In this red cylinder, there is compressed hydrogen gas. The gas comes out at a high pressure, goes through this pressure regulator. The regulator drops the pressure from the pressure of the tank down to low pressure, which comes through the tube. The screwing tube comes in here and up into my high school carburetor. This carburetor was handmade. I want you to come look at this real close. Yeah, this was handmade by me when I was a high school student. And you can see the hydrogen comes in here, the air goes in here, and the two mix and I control the power of the engine by opening and closing this, this needle valve. So I, that determines how much hydrogen flows. Now, if this were any other fuel than hydrogen, this kind of a simple carburetor wouldn't work because hydrogen burns at very wide flammability rates. It can be 4% hydrogen, 96% air, or it can be 96% hydrogen and 4% air, and it burns all the way in between. If this were propane or gasoline or hydrocarbon, it would just start smoking and go out if you get just a teeny, teeny bit off a perfect mixture. But because hydrogen is the way it is, this works. So turn on our hydrogen, we got hydrogen on, we have some pressure coming out through the line, yeah, perfect. So I'm gonna go ahead now and turn this on. Back behind the engine is an electric motor, and I have a switch for the electric motor, 
when I turn that on, it's going to make the engine turn for me. This used to have only a rope start. You had to pull this rope to get it started. Well, I don't look very graceful when I do that. I'm afraid I'm going to be you know, a macho scientist. Or Instead of pulling the rope, I'm going to turn on this big motor. Then I'll turn the motor off after we get it started, and I'll run it just off hydrogen. So, safety glasses, always. Okay, so now, turn on the electric motor. Here we go. All right, you can hear the motor turning. It's pulling air in, but there's no hydrogen. There is a spark, but nothing's burning because without fuel, it won't burn. So I'm gonna turn it back on, get it motoring, and then when I start opening the valve, see if you can hear the difference as we start getting pops or explosions of hydrogen inside the cylinder. Okay, here we go. So you notice I turned the electricity off and then it was just run on hydrogen and then I could control the amount of power by opening and closing this valve. In the world's first hydrogen car, which was my Model A, this valve was on the tanks in the back of the pickup Model A truck and my younger brother, who became the mayor, <laughs> but then he was too little, Mayor Lewis would sit there and run this valve and I was driving. So if I wanted to go faster, I would go like this, and he'd open the valve and speed it up. And if I wanted to slow down, it was kind of a rudimentary system, but it worked. So what I'm gonna do this time, I'm gonna start it, and then I'll turn off the electric motor, and I'll, I'll run it, and then I'll show you how I turn the power up and turn it down. Now, all the time I'm doing this, coming out of this exhaust, and this is the part I wish you were here, but coming out of the exhaust is water vapor. It kind of smells like a, uh, a laundry. It's got that humid smell. And I've actually taken a cold glass and put it here and it condenses the, the exhaust into water. And then on national television, you drink it. That was a good drinker. Okay, you ready? So turn the motor back on.
Okay, notice that it started idling very slow. When you idle an engine on hydrogen, you can actually idle it much slower than you can on gasoline. It's a neat fuel. And someday, everybody's gonna be driving hydrogen cars. Someday sooner than you think. Yeah. There you go, I think. So, hydrogen. Little could I have known that uh, it was going to become so important and that it would take so long for mm -hmm. it to happen. A lot of things needed to get in place before it would get going. It's, it's fun now. Uh, we have seven automobile manufacturers making hydrogen cars, and they're making more and more of them. And there's a huge program now to build hydrogen refueling stations all over our country. So uh, a lot of people thought, you know, maybe hydrogen was never going to be the deal. But I'm pleased to say it is. And I think you'll see that happen more and more. Interestingly, uh, let me just show you a quick shot of that very, very first hydrogen car. I want to show you when it was green when I was in high school. And you can see the hydrogen cylinder in the back. Mm -hmm. You can see the steering wheel where the master driver sat. <clears throat> <laughs> That's you. But look, coming from the back, there's a little piece of rubber tubing going oh, down yeah. across the running board <laughs> up to the engine. And that's how uh, the fuel got up there in the engine. And it took a lot of effort to get it to work, but then it really changed. And this opened so many doors and opportunities for me. This was a science fair project. Yeah. And little did I know this was going to, to just give me so many opportunities. Years later, when I was graduating from the university, and remember, I, I wanted to build hydrogen cars, so I didn't know what to major in. And so I majored in physics, chemistry, electrical, mechanical, and chemical engineering. At five majors, I got my bachelor's degree, and just my last couple weeks at the school, I was introduced to a gentleman that was looking for a protege, someone to mentor. And they had told him about my hydrogen car and how I won a gold and silver prize at the International Science Fair, and so he came to, to meet me. And I, I showed him the hydrogen Model A, and here he is. He's the guy in the red jacket, no less than Bill Lear, the guy that made the Learjet, the guy that Thomas Edison himself, himself mentored. And notice way over on the far right, wearing a tie and a white shirt, is none other than Peugeot's good friend. <laughs> right, yeah. So the hydrogen car opened the door for me to be able to go and be mentored by Bill Lear. And then later, it created the opportunity for me to create a company. And it was in that company that I needed a special computer to test hydrogen storage tanks that we built the first Billings computer. And out of that came the Billings microcomputer. And that's really what launched my whole career and, and eventually resulted in establishment of Acellus. So, started with a Mr. Mitchell science teacher that caught my attention with a CO2 <laughs> with sprayed out ice fire extinguisher and carried it on by showing me a hydrogen explosion. 
which made me then realize that there was a way to power cars with no pollution. I, I have such a special sacred opportunity to work with, to mentor so many students. Um, Bill Lear told me that I was the only person in his career he ever mentored. And interestingly, when he mentored me, I was about your age, at least those of you that are in high school. I was just coming out of college. And Mr. Lear was about the same age I am now, oh. 21. <laughs> or so, or so. It's all relative. No, we were about the same age. And interestingly, I did the math after he told me that he was mentored by Thomas Edison, I did the math, and Thomas Edison was about the same age I am now when he mentored Bill Lear. Funny. So this must be a mentoring age. <laughs> when you get my age, and you've done all of these wonderful projects and experiments throughout your life, then you will have made every mistake that a person can make, <laughs> and you'll be ready to mentor someone <laughs> so they won't have to make all the mistakes. And you know, I learned so much from Mr. Lear, but I, I credit the most important thing that I learned from him is that just a completely normal guy like me can do big things. And if that's true, well then normal guys like you can too. Now some of you are, are super normal, I know, but it's, it's exciting to think that if we, if we believe we can, we're halfway there. It sure has helped me to learn to be able to test different <laughs> ideas in a mental model. And it's really fun. You have to actually build it. If you're going to learn anything from a mental experiment, you actually have to see it. And I, some of people going by my office, what is he doing? <laughs> I've never seen, I've never seen that. Either, mental experiment. So much better to have your experiment backfire or blow up while it's in your mental mode than it is when you actually are building in the laboratory. We have so many opportunities in the days of the most advanced science that mankind has ever known. And um, as I go back and I remember my early days, uh, which, you know, probably seem to you like we're a long time ago, but to me it doesn't seem like it was that long ago. As I go back and remember those things and see how much everything's advanced, I really get excited about what the world would be like when you're the mentor sitting here telling your great students, you guys can do this. Yes. And I think a lot of the great things that are going to happen are going to be because you and you and you are the ones who did it. Steady hard. It's worth it. Thanks.